Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. This is Bewilderbeasts, an infotainment show dedicated to inspiring curiosity for all ages by investigating the ways animals intersect at humanity. I am not a historian, an ethologist, a researcher, a scientist, a zoologist, a trained audio engineer, or an expert in, well, anything. Y'all, I'm lucky if I can remember to put my clean laundry in the dryer before it gets funky. And while I make every effort to present things as accurately as I can with a fun flair, I'm going to mess up. And that's okay. I hope I've given you a nice place to jump off from on your own adventures into curiosity, or at the very least, I've given you the key to win your next round of trivia. Hello and welcome to Bewilderbeasts. I'm your host, Melissa McKee McGrath, and today I'm recording 3,117 miles from Yorkshire, England. And today, I'll run through of the presentation, but without visuals for you because, you know, podcasting, audio format. And man, you're missing out. <laughs> for the Kennebunk Free Library Talk on Tuesday, December 6th at 6.30 p.m. So come hang. Let's go. Hi, everyone. So I'm going to keep it short up here at the top. Um, this is just a run through for me for the KFL Public Library talk that I'm giving tomorrow as of this recording. Some of these animals will be really familiar to you if you've been listening from the beginning. Almost all of them can be found in the archives of the show, most of them back in season one, which, <laughs> by the way, to remember and recall all of these animals, I had to go back to season one, which I thought was going to be a lot more painful. The audio wasn't quite there yet. I hadn't yet known exactly how editing software worked, but I got there eventually, I'd like to think. And I was learning. It was 2020 and a lot has happened since then. <laughs> oh, sweet summer child from 2020. Ah, <sighs> Yeah, I don't really re care to relive any of that. Let's Let's come back to 2022 and just know that we've come so far and we have a lot to talk about. All right. With that said, let's do this MK2. Hit it. Have you ever just stopped to think about all the places where animals work to help us? So let's just check this out, right? They work in medicine, in teaching. They work in the military for explosive detections and to keep our military men and women safe. They work for protection and the law as comfort animals and in apprehension. They work in environmental protection, and we're going to meet some of those dogs today. They work in schools. They work in food production. I have six, well, really two right now, who poop me breakfast every single morning, and it's pretty dang great. They work in science and they work to help kids and in archaeology, problem solving the biggest mysteries of our ancient history existence. They work in service work and in so many more facets of human life. Essentially, any place you find people working, you can find an animal connected in some way. So why should we use animals to work with us? Well, animals have a superpower and often it's their noses. And it's not just dogs, as you're going to see later on in today's presentation. Many animals 
have a legit superpower. <laughs> Animals can find cancer and drugs, bug infestations, missing people. And if you're thinking about just dogs finding missing people, you are so wrong. Horses are now being trained in search and rescue work and they can find the missing. There are two teams right now in the state of Maine who can go out and find missing people on horseback and the horses are doing the scenting. They can find endangered animals. They can use their adorableness to help bring comfort and entertainment to people all over the world. And their instincts can be honed to help people. Like hawks and eagles can be trained to pluck illegal drones flying over airport space. Dolphins have saved drowning people and can find mines underwater. So let's just look at one particular superpower, a dog's nose. They can smell 13 parts per trillion. And that equates to about three drops of odor in four Olympic-sized swimming pools. Dogs can also smell 40 feet under your feet. That is four basketball nets straight down into the earth. Over a mile in the water, they can smell three drops of odor. That's crazy. I can't smell a mile away, but my dog can. And here's how they can see so far. Not unlike Superman using x-ray vision with their noses, where they can see through walls, through plastic, through 40 feet of rock and dirt. But they have this magic organ called the Jacobson's organ or the Vimero nasal organ. So take that to Jeopardy. You're welcome. This magic organ is a patch of skin cells that sits behind the dog's front teeth, just like they do in snakes and in reptiles. And I'm sure you've seen a snake when they're tasting the air. They're sticking their tongue out and they're tasting the air. Well, dogs do that too. And they use it in a similar way to the snakes. They flick their tongues out when they're sniffing and they get some of that odor on their tongue. They get it onto that Jacobson's organ behind their teeth. And those skin cells work almost like a super highway shortcut from the roof of their mouth to their brain. Like in Monopoly, when you go past go, yeah, it's like that. It gets you to where you want to be faster because of this patch of cells. It's a vestigial organ in humans, though, meaning we no longer have it. Or if we do have it, it's not plugged in. We have another vestigial organ called the appendix. It can still cause a whole lot of problems, even though it's not plugged in. All of human evolution went into our brain and higher level thinking and vision, whereas a dog's brain evolved to be 40% dedicated to scent. They see through their noses, just like many of the animals that we're going to talk about today. In fact, when you make cookies, you can smell them, I'm sure, but your dog can smell every single ingredient in those cookies. And if they could talk, they would tell you exactly how much of each ingredient is sitting in the batter. So let's look at some of the arenas that dogs actually help us every day. So let's start with animals who help us medically. First, we have Daisy, who is a Labrador retriever who was able to find cancer by sniffing people's breath and urine. Ew. Not only could she find this cancer in patients through a medical facility, but she also was trained so well that she was able to tell her owner, alert to her own owner, which was able to detect cancer before the owner even knew there was an issue, thereby being able to get a diagnosis much earlier than had she just waited. And this likely saved her life. Daisy worked for medical detection dogs and found cancer in over 500 people over her career. In fact, we humans have yet to make a machine that can match a dog's accuracy. With up to 97% accuracy when sniffing through breath and urine, dogs are now teaching machines how to be as good at detecting as they are. Though I would be more interested in getting laboratory work done if a real Labrador walked into my doctor's appointment. And here are the COVID-19 dogs. When I started Bewilderbeast due to the pandemic, 
Of course, one of the biggest stories that kept coming to me were the COVID-19 dogs. They were prophesized to save us all. And while it took about six to eight weeks to actually train these dogs to accurately find COVID-19 with accuracy using similar techniques to what I teach dogs at an animal shelter to find clove oil on a Q-tip, it took quite a bit of time to figure out exactly how these logistics would work. How would we deploy these COVID canines? In part, when you have dogs in public spaces, who handles them? What if someone doesn't consent to a search? What alternatives are there in case someone is afraid of dogs or doesn't consent, which is valid? In Hunter and Duke's case, and these are two dogs that were in Boston that were trained for COVID-19 who were deployed at the end of 2021. And it's not Hunter, it's Hunter in Duke because Boston. These were the first two dogs deployed for this work in schools near Boston, Massachusetts. My very valid concerns about sending dogs into spaces with multicultural populations being handled by police aside, these dogs were able to go into buildings and detect COVID with over 90% accuracy just by sniffing the air in the area around these individuals that were in the school. This is incredible work that they are doing. But dogs are not the only ones who are working in the find things that harm people category. We have my favorite little hero, Magawa. Magawa wasn't a popo trained rat. A popo, super fun to say, it's a group that trains rats and dogs to find tuberculosis and landmines. Magawa was the hero rat. He was an African pouched rat and they lived to about eight years of age. And a couple years ago, Magawa earned a gold medal. He was a legit hero. He cleared over 1,518,000 square feet of land in five years in the Balkans. These rats are larger than the rats that you know of. Uh, unless you're in New York City. Those rats get pretty big. But these rats weigh about three pounds. But they are lighter than dogs and therefore can walk over the mines without a boom situation. And using rats was the idea of a graduate student. Not some mucky muck business person or someone working for big rats. No, a graduate student named Bart Wheatgens. He knew he could train his own pet rat to find objects and fetch them in return for snacks. I mean, people could teach me to fetch things for snacks. I would enthusiastically comply. <laughs> so Bart went to the government and said, hey, give me some money and I'll train your rats to find explosives. And y'all, this worked. <laughs> The government gave this guy money and he trained these rats to find landmines. This was over 20 years ago and they're still using the same training and the same rats. These rats were able to find landmines that even metal detectors could not detect. Rats are just another one in the post-war fight for safety. They are light enough so they don't set off the explosives and they are super easy to train and they are incredibly fast workers. Magawa was able to clear 35 acres. Remember, one acre is 16 tennis courts in a 4x4 formation. So this is a lot of tennis courts that he is searching with that adorable little twitching nose. Magawa alone had found 39 landmines and 28 items of unexploded ordnance. I don't like that phrase at all. And these include 2.7 million tons of cluster bombs dropped by the United States over a four-year window. A quarter of them did not explode, meaning that they are still very active and can kill people. America. Cambodia has the highest number of amputees. 
people who due to injury or illness have had their arms, hands, legs, or feet removed. 25,000 of them are unexploded ordnance-related amputees, and 64,840 deaths are directly related to the mines and their explosions. It's estimated that there are over 3 million unexploded landmines in Cambodia, and only half of the land has been cleared, meaning Magawa and his friends have a lot of work still left to do to help people stay safe. So don't poo-poo the Apopo rats. I think that they are smart and wonderful, trainable, and amazing animals who do tend to get a bad rap in kids' books, like Templeton of Charlotte's Web and in Folklore. But if you want to read a great book for young readers, I'd suggest 7+. plus. Look at the amazing Maurice and his educated rodents. This is a Discworld book written by my favorite author, Terry Pratchett, where he has a different spin on the Pied Piper folk story. And there's a movie coming out where Maurice is voiced by Hugh Laurie. Haha, <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, and you're going to find yourself cheering for the rats, and you will never see rats in the same way again. Oh yes, and adults, you'll like this one too. So moving on to the next one, we have the Croatian Bomb Detection Bee. And when I started this show, Bewilderbeast, there was one animal who inspired me to learn more. Not just learn stuff for the kids that I was trying to keep them busy during a pandemic, but this was the animal who inspired my entire podcast. It is, in fact, the logo for this show. It is the Croatian Bomb Detection Bee, a little honeybee that does very, very big things. These bees can detect buried landmines from over three miles away. The bees are taught with associative learning. This just means that one thing happens, then another thing happens. And every animal learns this way. And you do too. Think of your cell phone ringing. When a text goes off, you get a hit of adrenaline, and then you reach for your phone. Now, if someone else has your cell phone ring in nearby proximity, their phone goes off, you are still probably reaching for your phone. That sound means incoming message, which is a little hit of our brain chemical that is, <laughs> weirdly, not unlike heroin. Yay, dopamine. Brains are fun. So if a bee is fed a higher concentration of sugar water when in the presence of an explosive material, the bee starts to look for the explosive material in order to get the sugar water. And they are working. When the very soil that surrounds the flowers contain chemicals that have contaminated that dirt, it feeds up through the flowers, the bees know it. And they all flock as one to the source in search, not necessarily for the chemicals that go boom, but for the chemicals that mean they get sugar water. And in this area of the Balkans, they are faster and easier to train and a lot cheaper too than a human and dog team looking for big things that go boom. As of 2019, there are still approximately 90,000 landmines left over from the Croatian War of Independence. 1.5 million mines were deployed by both sides and 90,000 are left for the bees to find. They are saving potentially millions of people from injury and death every single year. As a result, beekeepers are fighting incredibly hard to ban pesticides, not just in the Balkans, but all across Europe, and I hope they can do it. Animal helpers are all around us, but there are three terms that I hear as a dog trainer that often get confused, service dog, therapy dog, and emotional support dog. In fact, every third email I've gotten in the last three years has been, can you train my emotional support dog to stop biting people? I can tell you, when I walk into those houses, I am not personally feeling emotionally supported. <laughs> so let's take a few minutes to go over each one of these terms, and hopefully you will be able to help me educate people on these very different jobs and how these animals really legitimately help people. 
The first one is service animals. And this used to only be dogs. And these dogs worked incredibly hard, but they are expensive to train and they have to be ready to do their job at a moment's notice. Like lead a person who's going to have a seizure away from a stairwell or pod the hands to prevent an owner from going into a panic attack. And these dogs only work for an average of six to seven years. So in 2011, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, this is the law that says animals can help people with disabilities have access to public spaces. So the ADA was updated and said, you know what? Miniature horses can do the work for up to 20 years. So if they are house trained and can do a task for their owner, they are also allowed under the umbrella of service animals too. They also help people who are challenged with mobility so humans can lean on them to get up. Whereas if we use dogs in this way, the dogs can get really hurt. You don't see very many miniature horses doing this work, but you might still see them out, in the, out and about in public. And they aren't really pets to touch, make faces at, point at, make kissy faces at. These animals are working hard to guide their owner through life. Imagine going to a grocery store. And if that was hard for you physically or emotionally, and you needed a service animal to help you get through the day just so you can do the most basic task, like grab groceries, that animal has to be constantly working, ready to alert to do his or her job. So we cannot distract them no matter how cute they are. These animals have to do a task for an individual and they live and work for that individual from the time they are trained all the way up through the time that animal is retired. The next animal we have is an emotional support pet. These are not trained animals. You cannot take this animal into a grocery store or into public spaces. They support their owner emotionally. You can technically get a note from a doctor or a medical provider to keep if an apartment or housing group will not let you keep your pet and it would cause emotional distress to say goodbye to that animal. These are domesticated animals only. So emotional support emus, crocodiles, definitely no sharks, absolutely no one bears. These do not exist. But guinea pigs, dogs, cats, potentially iguanas, sure, these can all be under the umbrella of an emotional support animal. These are not allowed in public spaces unless you are given express permission from the owner of the facility. These animals used to be able to go on domestic flights, but those laws have been changing because people have been abusing these laws. Then we have therapy animals. Therapy dogs are the dogs on this list who help other people. Service animals help their owner. Emotional support animals help their owner. But therapy dogs help others by providing comfort and help. Trained dogs who work with other people, like kids in hospitals, library reading hours, college kids who have study breaks during finals week, nursing homes, etc. Certifications are usually requested, so check in with the organization first to see if that school, library, business, whatever, has an organization that they are already working with before jumping into hiring a therapy animal. And make sure that you're getting the right team for the job that you need. If a therapy animal does well in schools, but maybe not in medical facilities because of beeping and walkers and shiny floors, then make sure that you're finding the right team to come and work in a school. Not every dog loves every environment, and I promise, as good as many kids are, not every dog is going to love kids either. So be very specific if you want a dog team to come in. And not every dog can do this work. The number of dogs and owners that I have coming into my classroom, the owner with their bouncing doodle going, 
I want my dog to be a therapy dog, and that dog looks like Tigger the Tiger on amphetamines, that might not be a good outlet for this dog for now. That can change over time with patience, with maturity, but that dog who's bouncing on the end of a leash might be better served doing agility or building a foundation through other kinds of training with that handler for a while and then grow up, be a big boy dog, (laughs) and then can go and do the hard work of being calm around people. And again, not every dog can do this work or any of the other jobs on this list, especially if they are overexcited or fearful. And we have to be honest with if the dog likes the work that they're doing. And I have two more animals here that are going to help people in different ways. The first is in forensic entomology. And I always, always, always double check because I almost always say etymology. (laughs) One is the study of bugs and insects, entomology. The other is the study of language evolution. Forensic is almost always crime-related, so forensic entomology is the study of how bugs can solve crime. That is very different than how that language can solve crimes, which, weirdly, it did in the Unabomber case. The Unabomber used certain quirks in his writing that only some people in a very specific time frame at one university used. That's how they were able to start to track Ted Kaczynski and get that guy really put away before he hurt more people. But back to... The other one, the entomology one, (laughs) I always have to check. We talked about a cat who solved a murder by comparing her fur and DNA to similar hairs on a coat found by Shirley Duguay. This was a Canadian woman who was killed by her estranged boyfriend. That cat's fur advanced human DNA technology in both the United States and in Canada. DNA has come a long, long, long way since the Duguay case, and it's a fascinating area of science. There are many specialties in forensics, but we are going to cover one branch in particular today, forensic entomology. Dang it, forensic etymology. (laughs) That is the study of bugs in death and in legal cases. When I was in high school, I was fascinated with the idea of forensics. I even did my chemistry project on forensics where you could pour a liquid metal into a body and you would be able to pull out a replica of a murder weapon. Very CSI, for better or worse, as I'm sure every forensic scientist is so over CSI. (laughs) But unfortunately, I did that project in the middle of nowhere, Maine, after my mom left town for the weekend. So I was all by myself in a creaky house in the woods, writing about dead bodies and graphic injuries. (laughs) So let's just suffice it to say, I wish I had made a baking soda vinegar volcano instead. I don't think I slept for two days, (laughs) but entomologists use bugs in many, many ways. For starters, the one that is frequently used on crime shows is to demonstrate a timeline and use the life cycle of a bug to determine maybe the time of death. So investigators can figure out a timeline and then start their investigation. So if a fly laid eggs, but there's no larva, that would pinpoint a different point in time in that if there were bugs larva, and a whole second larva cycle had started. That would pinpoint the time of death a lot sooner. So that's probably about as far as I should go about talking about gruesome murdery things in a public library. (laughs) So now when you think of the world's smartest animals, did any of you think, hmm, pigeon? But maybe after today, you won't think of pigeons as rats with wings. 
a common phrase that I used to overhear all the time when I was living in Boston, and it really bugged me because I think pigeons are so smart and really pretty birds. Cherami, which means dear friend in French, was a homing pigeon who saved 194 people while losing her own leg and had her eye shot out and being shot in the chest. How did this pigeon save this many people? Well, in World War I, over 100 years ago, a group of 550 men were trapped on the side of a hill behind enemy lines with no food, no ammunition, and they were also receiving friendly fire, which isn't. That's the name if your team is shooting at you because they don't know that you're there. So how did this guy's team end up thinking that they were the enemy? The supporting military, who were coming to help, thought that Major Charles Whittlesley and his men were on the other side of the hill. So they went to the wrong place. When they saw military who wasn't expected to be there on this side of the hill, they assumed, wrongfully, that Whittlesley's men were the enemy. Major Whittlesley started sending messages to Allied forces, men on their side who were shooting at them, in addition to the enemy soldiers who were also shooting at them. There were no cell phones, so he had to use the tools he had. He had three birds. The first homing pigeon sent up carrying a message. Many wounded, we can't evacuate. The bird was shot down by the enemy, by their friends. It really doesn't matter at that point, does it? The second bird was sent with a note. Men are suffering. Can support be sent? That pigeon went up and was immediately shot down. This is when Cher Ami, their last hope, was sent up with a message in a canister attached to her left leg. The message said, We're along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. That was a quote. Cher Ami was shot by Germans after rising from the bush but was able to continue flying 25 miles in just 25 minutes. That is 60 miles an hour. That is faster than you're allowed to go, theoretically, on I-295 near Portland. Cher Ami saved 194 of those 550 men while being shot through the chest, blinded in one eye and shattering her leg. The leg was amputated, and a teeny tiny little wooden replacement leg was custom made for her. Yep, her. She became the hero of the 77th Infantry Division. Pigeons have been used in pigeon posts, delivering the mail, and in wartime, like Cherami, and they were called war pigeons. Homing pigeons are commonly called racing pigeons, and they have gone on to fly 1,100 miles to home. And there is so much more to learn about these pigeons, and I talk about them in many episodes on Bewilderbeasts. And if you're curious, check out everything you can find about super cool pigeons. So whatever happened to Sharami? Well, they didn't know that she was a female pigeon until they went to have her taxidermied or stuffed for presentation at the Smithsonian Museum where she continues to lay and rest. At one years old, she died, which was quite young for a pigeon. In the wild, they can live three to four years. But if living with people and, you know, not shot, it's not uncommon for them to live up to 20 years. So now let's look at some animals who help the environment for people. There are some special firefighting animals, and they may not be the first animals you think of. Goats. Yep, goats. First, we have to look at the fires that have been without question getting worse and worse every single year in the United States, in Australia, and pretty much everywhere because, hey, climate change. This is almost all due to human impact on the environment. But there are lots of people who are trying to help prevent wildfires. 
you have to cut and clear the brush, the dried grass, the wood, the scraps, the everything. If you can control the fuel, you can control the burn. So how do these firefighting goats help? Well, goats eat everything, seriously everything. And they can get where a lot of machinery cannot easily get. These goats can get into nooks and crannies that humans and machines cannot get to, and they can easily climb up onto hillsides that if we were working a weed whacker, we might fall down and get very, very injured. So by sending in the goat brigade to eat grass, goats, bushes, plants, and dying foliage, that is less fuel for the fires to consume meaning a community might only have to deal with a small fire instead of a massive fire that is burning out of control. Again, control the fuel, control the fire. And these goats are happy to eat whatever is in front of them. So it's a win-win. And another way that goats can help humans, do you like tea? The myth that goats will eat anything is kind of wildly circulated. It turns out goats really are just curious. They're gonna put almost everything in their mouth just to see if it's edible, but they're actually quite picky. So in some parts of China, goats are charged with maintaining their tea crops. Goats do not exactly love the leaves used for tea. It's too bitter, but they love the leaves of the weeds that grow alongside the tea. So they eat that. An extra bonus, the goat poop. It fertilizes the plants used for tea, ensuring it's healthy in the fields and can make it safely to your cup. Mmm. Goat poop. Delicious. And this was my favorite slide to make. I really wish my show had a visual component because these are just too much fun to make and not everyone can see them. But back in 2008, researchers in Puget Sound off America's West Coast noticed that killer whales were getting pregnant, which was great. Super great. Happy birthday. Congratulations. But there was a large percentage of those pregnancies that ended in miscarriage. Otherwise put, the babies were not being born. They died in utero. Scientists, as they do, wanted to know why, but to find out, they had to find their poop. And given that these are whales, rather large animals, you would think finding their poop would not be that hard, but it turns out it is. Their poop is the consistency of algae and snot? Ew. A few articles actually said it was like egg drop soup. The other complication is that the liquidish gold to scientists sink really, really quickly. So researcher Sam Wasser decided to bring in the big guns. Tucker, a ball-obsessed black Labrador retriever who, and I'm not making this up, was afraid of water. Selecting an eight-year-old aquaphobic dog to help marine researchers might not have been my first choice, but that's why I'm a pet dog trainer and not a scientist. It turns out that Wasser was correct. With Tucker's drive to play to get his tennis ball, he was easily trained to associate the smell of whale poop with getting his ball, not unlike the bomb detection bees or the rats or any of the other animals that we talked about at the beginning of today. And with Tucker's powerful nose, he can track it over a mile away. Let's stop for a second. How far is a mile from you? It's about a 15-minute walk. So for me, it's a park in the next neighborhood over. (laughs) Tucker has since been retired, and there are dozens of dogs who do this work now for researchers, but conservation canines, CK9 for short, have other important jobs too. They helped find injured koalas after the devastating fires earlier this year, and last year, and the year before that. And Wasser has been able to help prosecute 
ivory poachers in Africa, track wolverines in the Rocky Mountain region, and better understand interactions between wolves and caribou. These conservation canines can find spotted owls, endangered giant armadillos, and some dogs can identify 13 species of animal poop. But why were there so many whale miscarriages? What did the scooped poop scoop? Well, these whales didn't have enough food. An orca's primary diet is Chinook salmon. And those whales were finding less and less due to overfishing, which is leading to more and more miscarriages. And in addition, they can also track how humans were affecting whales through their poop. For example, scientists were able to tell with samples just taken after the 4th of July weekend, where there were more boaters and human activity on the water. The whales had higher levels of stress hormones in their fecal matter. I would not expect poop to paint a pretty picture, metaphorically or literally. And that's absolutely the case with miscarrying whale pods. We humans are smart enough to train a dog who is afraid of water to find whale poop. I hope we're also smart enough to change our behavior so we can address this problem that we undoubtedly are contributing to. And lastly, we have Bear. This is another conservation canine. Bear is a dog who risked his life to help find baby koala bears during the last bout of fires in 2019 in Australia. It's believed that many of the habitats will never recover from those fires. A half a billion animals lost their lives, but thanks to dogs like Bear, many of them were actually rescued in time. University of Sunshine Coast Detection Dogs for Conservation are able to sniff out sick, orphaned, and injured koalas across New South Wales and Queensland. Bear happened to be trained by USC academics and works in partnership with IFAW, the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Bear was purchased as a puppy from a pet shop by a family, which I very rarely recommend, but he was a handful and became too much for them when they moved to a smaller house. At six years old, Bear was labeled as high-energy obsessive and didn't like to be touched and is completely uninterested in people. That doesn't exactly make for good rescue prospects. <laughs> like, here, adopt this dog who doesn't like people and will destroy your house and home. But those same qualities made him perfect for detection work, which is exactly why he was chosen to go find baby koalas. Bear is incredibly focused in his work, and he's brilliant on focusing on one thing. Again, back to the tennis ball. That tennis ball is the same thing that often police officers will use when dogs are looking for narcotics, for missing people, for fleeing suspects, and for weapons. But Bear has zero prey drive, which is essential if he's going to be trying to find baby koalas. You don't want him finding it and then going, I found it. Oops, I ate it. That's bad form. Because they can smell what we can't see, dogs can be used to track rare animals, detect pest species, and locate threatened native plants. So they have a much more important role to play in conservation. So there you go. That's today's presentation. And I'm going to sign off for this particular episode in a way that I'm not going to at KFL. Thank you for joining me today on Bewilderbeast. This episode was the recording that I did the day before the presentation at KFL. So if you missed it, here you go. Maybe I'll make a video for Patreon folk. Oh, speaking of Patreon, I found a whole bunch of OG audio from the presentations I did during the pandemic. 
I think I'm just gonna toss them in the Patreon feed. The quality, not the best. And you can tell I'm just still trying to find my legs and talking to kids who are late into the Zoom meeting or raising their hands and all that fun stuff. But we got there and some of the content on like the am I, oh wait, family friendly show, am I the jerk hole on Reddit? Um, I ended up answering a ton of Reddit questions during the pandemic that I pulled the audio from as it relates to dogs. And so I'll post that in the Patreon feed just for fun. Don't feel obligated to listen, y'all. I'm just looking for a place to put this stuff so I can listen back on it on walks and see what stories to pull, get ideas. And it's easier for me just to put it up there and listen back than find another program and have another RSS feed and all that other stuff. So there you go. You get that too. It won't be the best, I promise. (laughs) As most of it was visual in nature, I think. I still have to listen to it, but it's there if you want. More later, and those will stop popping up in the next few weeks. Um, All of the resources for what I talked about today will be in the episodes that they were referencing. So I think there were like episode one, two, three, nine, 15. Um, There's a bunch of episodes in here. They are all sourced somewhere in the backlog. I'm not going through it all right now, but I will go back and put it in later. And with that, intro and outro music is Tiptoe Out the Back by Dan Lebowitz. Interstitial music is by MK2. Additional music is by Pixabay and Freesound.org. Don't forget to like, subscribe, check out bewilderbeastpod.com. And if you have any stories, especially if they relate to the holidays and animals, please send it in. We did uh, Mary Lloyd last year, the rat battling horse skeleton. That was so much fun. And I don't think I'm going to be able to top it. So I need your help. (laughs) I'm thinking about the goat effigies in, I think it's Finland. Um, I obviously haven't done any research on it yet, but that's the only one that I can seem to find. So if you guys can find something, please help assist out. I'd really appreciate it. All right. I guess that's it. Um, Stay curious and I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at podfix on Twitter, official underscore podfix on Instagram, at podfixnetwork on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.